the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into Hour 3. It's a delight to bring back my dear friend, our good friend, uh, Tevi Troy. Dr. Troy is a uh, presidential and cultural historian. Uh, his most recent book, recent of many, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. It's a great read, uh, anyone who likes presidential history, and we're going to circle back to that in just a minute. But first off, I came to learn this is kind of interesting. There's this ritual in D.C., annual ritual. I don't like it. I will put my cards on the table, but we can talk about that, too. It's called the White House Correspondence Dinner. And uh, I'll let I'll let Tevi describe it, but he also had an interesting uh, set of interactions uh, recently on this. It's kind of an interesting insight, uh, set of insights Tevi has. Tevi, go ahead and describe what the White House uh, Correspondents' Dinner is and uh, what you're talking about here. Yeah, the White House Correspondents' Dinner is a tradition that's been going on for almost a century. It raises money for scholarships for kids, which is all great. And it is an an event in which the president gets up and makes humorous remarks, and often you have a comedian also make humorous remarks about the president. For a long time, it was done in good fun. But somewhere in the 1990s, the Clintons started bringing Hollywood people to the event, and then it became a much more glamour-filled event. So that kind of took it from a nice event where congressmen of both sides and people on, on both sides of the aisle and both sides of the journalistic divide would get together and be friendly to a, a very glamour, looking over everybody's shoulder event. And the other big development was in the 2000s. You started having nastier and nastier comedians, including Stephen Colbert in 2006. Right. It was a very, very rough uh, presentation. And then Obama, in 2012, went after Trump long before he was a serious presidential candidate in a very nasty way that um, he actually uh, prepared by telling C-SPAN in advance that he was going to go after Trump and have the camera on Trump's face. Trump is in the news. audience. Many have said yeah. this 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 helped Trump decide to actually run for president to undo the Obama legacy. I don't know if the, if that's apocryphal or not. I mean, you look at Trump's face again, and he was set up because C-SPAN was warned in advance yeah. to have the camera on Trump's face. I mean, he is a man who is seen as being ambushed like that. And it says, you know, when the president goes after a private citizen, I don't care if he's a billionaire, when the president goes after a private citizen, it is punching down, yeah. and it's not appropriate. Yeah. And there's a long tradition of presidents doing this in good humor, in a self-deprecating way, and if they touch on other people, they do it in a gentle, funny way. And I, I thought that brought us together, but the humor we've seen from the White House Correspondents' Dinner in recent years has been more divisive and driving us apart. So I can actually agree and disagree with you, Seth. I think I like the tradition of the White House Correspondents' Dinner as it was, but I don't like what it has become. Yeah, what it has become. Exactly right. I, I you know, I wish I would have uh, thought about this. I would, I should have called Bill, uh, our friend Bill Bennett. He told me about one he went to, and not maybe necessarily even when he was in the cabinet. So it could have been after he would have been someone invited to these things, right? And um, he said he and his wife Elaine got up in the middle of the the last one they went to, which would have been phew, at least twenty years ago, and walked out. 
uh, and and they walked out. They said because they thought it was inappropriate. Who I, it would be good to know who the comedian was. It might have been Don Imus, for all I recall, uh, with Bill Clinton. He said, regardless of who the president was, they thought it was inappropriate to talk about the president of the United States that way. The way the person roasted the president. Yeah, look, I mean, there, there's a line, right? In the 1960s, there is a line. You right. couldn't make fun of the president at all. Right. In the 1970s, you had the uh, Chevy Chase making fun of Gerald Ford by just stumbling around the White House, and everybody thought it, it was hysterical. And they even said on Saturday Night Live, they had the Chiron would read, this is not a good impersonation of President Ford. Right. But he got to President Ford, he dropped stuff, and everybody laughed. So I, I, I think that is gentle by today's standards. Yeah, yeah. It's groundbreaking. Yeah. And so they keep pushing the standards further and further. And, and I think that 2006 Stephen Colbert appearance, and I was actually there for that one, that the was awful. Time. The Michelle Wolf one, I seem to recall, was awful. Uh, the Imus one, I, I do recall watching it on C-SPAN. Uh, and, I, yeah, I mean, you shouldn't talk about the president of the United States that way, and people should understand that. I mean, people— well, Let's talk about some of, uh, some of the good ones. Yeah, I mean, do the good Ronald ones. Ronald Reagan yep. uh, gave some tremendous performances. He was, he was very funny. And Ronald Reagan, he used humor with a purpose. Yep. He would always try and accomplish something. So he would always have these great Soviet jokes mm-hmm. where he made fun of the Soviet Union. There's one joke. Uh, this wasn't at the Correspondence Center, but it's still a great Reagan joke and indicative of the point I'm making, that he's arguing with Gorbachev and he tells about how America's a free country and how any citizen can come up in front of the White House and just denounce Ronald Reagan in the loudest terms and won't be molested. And uh, Gorbachev says, our country is free too. Any citizen can come right up in front of the Kremlin and denounce Ronald Reagan also. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> My favorite was the one about the car dealer. I don't know if you remember that one, but about the Soviet man who buys a car and the car dealer says, that's great. We will deliver it to you on June 1st, 1985. And the guy and the purchaser says, no, I can't do June 1st. And the car dealer goes, my gosh, why can't you do June 1st? That's two years from now. And the guy says, that's the day my refrigerator repairman's coming. Right. right, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, right. But the jokes had a purpose. They were to well. I remember it. I mean, how many jokes do you remember ever from going to comedy show? You don't, but we remember a few of Ronald Reagan's, right? Because they had poignancy. Yeah, and, and poignancy and a point, which yeah. is the superiority of our system over the very flawed Soviet system. Right. Reagan recognized it. He pushed the point. He did it in a sort of a gentle, humorous way. But he was telling the American people, we're right and they're wrong. Yeah. And, and that, that's a good thing to, to use humor for. So uh, I am for humor when it's a point, when it's done graciously, when it's done self-deprecatingly. Now, it happened that Reagan was a great performer also. Yeah. And some presidents have been better at it than well, others. What? Yeah, but you know, you told me something years ago, years ago, Tevi, uh, that I remembered about Ronald Reagan. And I think it was in the context, actually, of how he handled when he was shot and how he did everything he could. You know, he's on the he's racing to GW Hospital in the back of the limo, uh, vomiting blood. And he did everything he could to, you know, get, you know, muster himself to walk into the hospital and not look like a sick or, for that matter, dying man or shot man. But to walk in, it took everything he had. He did. The doors of the hospital closed and then he collapsed. And you said to me. This man, like no other president, had the keenest of senses of what the American people needed to see in their president. I don't know if you still believe that or remember saying that, but anyway. And what the moment required. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, he actually, I mean, he did collapse shortly after that. And when he was wheeled on the gurney into the operating room, the nurse who saw him and his gray pallor said, this man is Code City, which yep. is how they, they, what they, how they refer to someone who was dying. Right. He was dying. Right. He, he coded. That's what you say. Yeah, exactly right. Now, you on this White House Correspondent Dinner, you were did, – did you want to tell me about what you were doing with Landon Parvin? Yeah, I did a panel last night to discuss these issues with Landon Parvin, who is just a legend. This tell people guy, who Landon is. He has been writing – he was a Ronald Reagan speechwriter in the first term. And he realized that he had a knack for writing humorous speeches. And he became the go-to guy for writing the president's speech, the gridiron dinner, to the alfalfa club, to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And he's been doing it for 40 years. And he's just terrific at it. And just to hear him tell stories about how he went to Nancy Reagan with certain routines. And he's done it bipartisan. He talked about some Democrats he's worked for. And here's a guy, he, he always brings a gentle but funny touch to his remarks. And the guy is, I think, a national treasure. So I was, when I was given an opportunity to be on a panel with this guy, I jumped at it. Did you learn anything in, 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 your panelizing, in your panelizing with him? Did you learn anything you didn't know about American presidential history? I think I learned some stuff about how the Nancy Reagan gridiron yeah. routine came where she— um, Secondhand rose? Secondhand rose. She sang in a secondhand clothes. Yeah, people, I want to remind people, if I have my history right on that, there was a lot of negative publicity because Nancy Reagan was refurbishing or redecorating the White House with a, you know, and she was best friends with Betsy Bloomingdale. So everyone was saying, you know, we're going through a hard time, right? That was the hit on her. We're going through a hard time. And she's, you know, redecorating the White House with the finest of bone china, et cetera, et cetera. So she comes out and does a dance skit. To the song Secondhand Rose as, what was it? Secondhand Clothes? Secondhand yeah. Clothes. Yeah. yeah. And, and the Parvin said some interesting things there. So, so first of all, that uh, he wrote the, the routine, and she took out references to Bessie Bloomingdale, who you mentioned, and Jerry Zipkin, who were her friends. She said she didn't want, he said she didn't want her friends to be part of it. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So and she like, comes out dressed as a rag lady, right? She is dressed in the most ridiculous yeah. assortment of clothes that are actually now, I believe, at the Ronald Reagan Library. Oh, how fun. Oh, how fun. And, I, and Arvid actually unearthed the audio of her singing it. Oh, and she, she was a trained performer. She was an I, actress. I, yeah. It was terrific. I, I, I've been looking for it. Maybe, maybe, we, maybe you can connect me or, or get it for me. I've been looking for that video for years. I haven't been able to find it. Tevi Troy is our guest, cultural and presidential historian. Fight House is his most recent book. TeviTroy.org is his website. I want to talk to you about the history of the right, uh, the history of the right in America, Tevi, when we come back, about a book you and I both read and an author I actually interviewed based on your uh, based on your recommending the book to me. Can we do that when we come back? Absolutely. Perfect. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. You know, over 44 million Americans owe more than $1.71 trillion in student loan debt, and these Americans are drowning in it. Up until my friends at Y-Refi came along, many of these people had no help. And no help. Why refi refinances defaulted private student loans while others will not? But that's just the beginning. Through their process, borrowers see serious FICO credit score recovery, allowing the borrowers to greatly improve their lives. I want to talk to you about the other angle of this because you can invest with Why Refi 
in a secure and collateralized portfolio, earn exceptional fixed returns, and actually help other people. You can do well by doing good for others. I take these kind of financing and investment endorsements extremely seriously, and I can tell you these people at Y-Refi, I kicked these tires. I looked under the hood. It is a fantastic program they have. And they are indeed good people. Go to investyrefi.com and check it out for yourself. That's invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y dot com. Why Refi is in the business of helping people that others won't, and you can be too. Investyrefi.com or call 855-316-3087. Dr. Tevi Troy is our guest. He's a cultural and presidential historian, among many other things. His most recent book is Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Tevi, based on your recommendation, uh, I read this book by uh, Matthew Continetti, who we both know some. And is that fair to say? We both know him some. And uh, totally yep. And he wrote this history of the conservative movement uh, going back about 100 years. I interviewed him last week. Uh, but I did all of this. I read the book and I interviewed him based on, you know, you're, you're recommending the book to me because we love the history, these, this kind of history. And uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about it because you wrote a uh, – you wrote, I mean everything you've written could be included as a, as a history of, of, of either a conservative or liberal movement. But one of your books, Intellectuals in the American Presidency, kind of was – kind of was the um, – in my mind at least in reading his book – the stepping stone for how he did it because he talked about the conservative intellectuals that influenced the various presidents as a way of doing the history of conservatism in America, which he takes back to the 1920s. Uh, Tev, I used to, uh, and I guess still probably do, start the history of the modern conservative movement in the 50s. Matt's probably right to take it back further, but what were your thoughts on that or the book or in general? I thought it was a very interesting book. Well done. I appreciated what you said on your radio interview with him about uh, my using my template. Uh, they didn't really take you up on that, but that's fine. Uh, the it was an interesting. I'm not sure I would have made that same choice, let's say, ten years ago. Right. Because the conservative movement, uh, certainly in the Reagan and post-Reagan era, was this Buckleyite movement in a way. Mm-hmm. Fired heavily by William F. Buckley in their creation of National Review in the 1950s, and the fusionist consensus that emerged in National Review. What uh, Continuity appears to be arguing is that we're beyond the fusionist consensus, and that we're back to an earlier version of conservatism that really emerged in Calvin Coolidge. Uh, I'm not sure I fully agree. I'm not sure we can't get back to a fusionist consensus, especially if people kind of galvanize around either the Russia threat or the China threat recognize the, um, the the danger that the um, censorship and the big tech companies face. But um, if you look at just in a Trumpian context, I think you could make that case about it's a, it's a 1920 version of conservatism. But yeah, I, I yeah. Charles is going to sort through some things in the years ahead. Yeah, Charles Kessler had been doing that for some years. Our other friend at the uh, Claremont Institute. He had been he had written a few columns about for those that are listening to, you know, the MAGA gender, Donald Trump, wondering where does this fit into the conservative pedigree or history? Kessler says, well, it actually does. <laughs> you go back and read Ronald Reagan's fav- second favorite president, Calvin Coolidge. You can find this um, anyway. That that's that's the thesis. Agree or disagree that that's been the thesis. Continetti seems to pick up on that. And this notion of fusionism. 
Yeah, I think I'm with you in in conceiving that it could come back. Uh, and the way I think it could come back to unite the disparate elements of the movement is it was rallied around or it was uh, it was it was built around opposition really first and foremost to communism in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Again, anything I say, you correct me where I'm wrong, Tevi. Um, and it seems to me, you know, there's a lot, at least from my perspective, a lot of neo-Marxism to fight <laughs> these days. And if we could just, you know, reapply our concern and shoulder to the wheel when it was abroad to what we're finding here, I think we could have a fusionist movement again. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I also think it's not just communism, but communism and the threat it poses to freedom. Yeah, yeah. If yeah. there's a nation on earth that is a communist nation and wants to just be in an insular way, then, you know, let it, let it do what it wants. But an expansionist Marxist regime, an expansionist form of communism, whether it's coming from our universities or the woke left or a nation like China, uh, that, that's something we should worry about. And, and getting back to the segment we had before about Reagan, you know, in one of those Reagan speeches at the White House Correspondence Center, he told his jokes, but then at the end he had this line that has been sticking in my head ever since, where he said, liberty binds us together. And I think it was liberty that bound the conservative movement together for all those years. The overwhelming principle was we want our freedom. Yeah. The religious right wanted freedom to act in a religious way. The, um, the economic right wanted freedom to start businesses and have a, a market. And the foreign policy right wanted to maintain freedom in the, force, in the face of a communist threat. So liberty has bound the conservative movement together, and, and I think it has bound America together, and I think we need to get back to that idea. Steve Hayward is resurrecting the memory of one of the people who made helped make the modern conservative movement, and that's Stan Evans, or M. Stanton Evans, uh, to give him his full name. And uh, his most uh, well-known book was a book called The Theme is Freedom, right? That was Stan Evans's point, too. And that was after the wall came down, but didn't realize how, how things were kind of falling apart in the conservative movement here at the time. But to remember that theme, I think you're right. Um, and I think when you look at the, the, the issues having to do with Elon Musk, social media, Twitter, you get the idea of freedom. You look at China, you get the idea of freedom. You look at a lot of these things, um, the, the way a lot of people feel about the con- cancel culture, uh, the way a lot of parents feel about you know having a bigger say in their education, which is something they never should have had to fight for. The theme is freedom, right, Teffy? Yeah, and uh, I'd love to talk about the, the, uh, the Elon Musk bill. Oh, you know, let's do that. We're going to take how, a- the conserv- how liberals are losing their mind over the idea that there might be less censorship on a platform. Hold, hold that thought. Hold that thought. Let me let me do that in the next segment if that's cool. It's a big one. It's important, Absolutely. and we're going to a quick break. I'm Seth Leibson. He is Dr. Tevi Troy, presidential and cultural historian. TeviTroy.org is his website. By the way, yeah, just in case, he spells his name T-E-V-I-T-R-O-Y. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Dr. Tevi Troy is our guest, author of many books, most recently Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump, talking about creating a fusionist or a new a neo-fusionist movement. How's that, Tevi? A neo-fusionist conservative movement. Uh, freedom uh, is, is how we would have to have it be coalesced. And Tevi, you were just talking about what the Elon Musk purchase of Twitter shows. I take it from the top on that point, if you don't mind. It's an important one. Look, Elon Musk has expressed his interest, and it looks like he's going to be successful in purchasing Twitter with one thought in mind, which is to increase free speech on the platform. 
and liberals are losing their mind over this idea of the expansion of free speech. And I just don't get it. As I was growing up, and you were growing up, free speech was the liberal ideal. And there were some conservatives who were a little uncomfortable with aspects of it. But now, to be pro-free speech is a conservative position. And I'm proud that it's a conservative position, because I want conservatives to be in favor of free speech. But it also should be an American position. I mean, it, it is kind of in the First Amendment, right? I mean, we, we have freedom of speech, and I just don't understand this liberal impulse to suppress ideas that they just don't want to hear. I think I have a thesis, and it's harsh. May I run it by you? Absolutely. You can always disagree with me. You know that. We've done it all our lives. Lord knows it's happened. <laughs> Lord knows. I have a thesis, and I think the thesis is – you said uh, the liberal opposition. I don't know that there's liberal opposition much anymore in this country. I don't know that there is a liberal movement in this country anymore. I think it's leftist. I was rereading Vaclav Havel uh, in his famous essay, 1978, Power and Power, The Power of the Powerlessness. The Power of the Powerless, sorry. And uh, this line, I cannot get past it. He says, if the main pillar of the system is living a lie, then it is not surprising that the fundamental threat to it is living the truth. That is why it must be suppressed more severely than anything else. The left does not want anyone to read our perspective, learn from it, hear from it. We have to be untermentioned and dismissed entirely from the scene, lest anyone get an idea that might run into and against the pillar of the system they think they built. Does that work for you? Maybe, but my question is, why now? Yeah. Why, why didn't they feel that way in 1982? I, why, I, why is it all of a sudden that free speech is such a threat? I don't think they had the power. I, uh, you know, I, 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 I do this, Tevi, to, to explain how I think the Democratic Party has moved so far leftward. There's a million ways to do it. Here's what I, here's how I do it, and I'd love your take on it. I don't think you and I ever discussed this. When the Black Panthers were on the march in the late '60s and early '70s, when Leonard Bernstein was throwing parties for them. Uh, and making news, and of course, Tom Wolfe wrote, wrote wrote that famous essay about it. What was it? Was that what was that? Mao Mowing the flag catchers? What? Uh, no, it was Radical Chic. Radical Chic was his famous essay on that. But they they were combined in a book. Uh, yes, Radical that's right. Chic that's why I put it. To, that's right. That's right. None of the Democratic leaders in this country, Democratic Party leaders in this country, would have anything to do with that nonsense at all. Not your Hubert Humphreys, not your Ted Kennedys, not your Ed Muskies, not your George McGoverns, not your Dan Moynihan's. They wanted no traffic with that nonsense. Today, we have versions of the we have versions of the Black Panthers in this country, and the Democratic Party uh, coddles them fundraises for them, endorses them, supports them. I think that's a big difference. And is afraid to criticize them. And is afraid to criticize them. I think that's 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 part of the highlight of how the Democratic Party has moved left. But I think it's part and parcel of an answer to what you are asking. Why wasn't this true in 82? I, leftism was much smaller then, I think. My best guess, my assessment. I have a different answer. Yeah. I think that there were fewer avenues for expressing opinion okay. back then. Okay. And if you control the three networks, and there were only three networks at the time, and you control all the major newspapers, and there is no fair, the fairness doctrine, so-called fairness doctrine, was in effect, so there's no conservative talk radio, there's no internet, you, you just didn't hear conservative ideas, I mean, unless you were reading the pages of National Review. And I think they liked that world. And now in this disaggregated world, there's all kinds of ways where you can yeah. get conservative ideas. And those conservative ideas might even bleed into 
the the liberal bubble where they don't want to see those ideas, and I think they get uncomfortable. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna use your answer along with mine. I like it. I I think that's right. There was no need. There was no necessary effort um, to do it. Uh, they control. They 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 defined the coin of the realm. And when the internet did come on board, Bill, we got to hit a break real quick, don't we? I'm hit, I'm hitting time. Maybe we can pick up on the other side of this, Tevi, if you have the time. Uh, you know, the point I was just going to make, though, going into the break, is that with that liberal media in those days, in the 70s and 80s, um, and yes, you're right, conservatives didn't have an outlet at all. But with the advent of the internet, my memory is conservatives jumped on it pretty quickly and kind of dominated it for a little while. Let me pick up on that with you when we come back, if I can. And that's why it needed to be, in Havel's words, suppressed more severely than anything else. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Tevi Troy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which are brought to you by the good people of Balance of Nature, balanceofnature.com. I take it every single day, 100% natural, not 99 and 99 not 99 and 44 one hundredths percent like Ivory Soap used to say or the song, uh, but 100 percent natural. Even the capsules, the vegetarian capsules, they come in, which, by the way, if you don't like swallowing capsules, I mean, they're normal size capsules. But if you don't like swallowing them, some people don't. They're designed easily to be opened up so you can sprinkle the product in the food or the drink. What is that product? It is the equivalent of 10 servings of fruits and veggies. You can get it every day with one daily dose, a blend of 16 whole fruits and 15 whole vegetables. Go to balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Dr. Tevi Troy is our guest. And uh, Tevi, we were just talking about what this opposition to Elon Musk's uh, purchase of Twitter uh, revealed in how the left so, got so animated by it, um, by by the by by the fact that this man whose politics are kind of you know all over the place. I mean, this is not a conservative man by any stretch, right? Yeah. But the one thing they cannot stand, I guess, is sunlight. They do that. The 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 notion that conservatives would have, be on an equal plane of discussion with liberals or conservatives and leftists would have the same rights to communicate. This was too much with them. They don't want us to exist is what I say, is how I put it. And they showed themselves as the most illiberal of movements in this country. Yeah, and people don't realize this, but if Twitter were a state, it would be somewhere around Massachusetts or Hawaii. There have been studies that show that Twitter as a whole skews heavily, heavily left. Mm -hmm. And they don't like this idea that it might be a fair playing field, that both sides might be able to speak equally. And, and I think you were right earlier when you say conservatives sometimes jump on new technology. Yeah, left. yeah. But they, they left overcorrected to that. Yeah, and that was my memory forward. when I started getting involved, which was later than a lot of people probably in Remember this audience. Top conservatives on Twitter. Yeah, no, yeah, I, know, I, I, it was I, a way for conservatives <laughs> to get galvanized and, and get information. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, yeah, I, I, I got on. I started getting in on in on the internet like a, later, probably than you and most, but maybe before some around 1996. And I, I remember there was a lot of conservative sites to go to. And not a lot of liberals. And I thought, OK, wait, now this is what we're getting. We conservatives are finally getting our media, whether whether I'm right or not, whether we dominated the early days of the Internet or not. Obviously, that's that's what they had to go and quash. 
just as much as they had to go and quash the New York Post, which is a conservative newspaper that carried the Hunter Biden story. It can't exist in the minds of the American people. Nothing conservative can exist, right? Yeah. Yeah, but I think in the long run, I think Twitter is going to regret the decisions they made in suppressing the Hunter Biden story from the New York Post yeah. and in trying to suppress the Babylon Bee. Okay. It was really the Babylon Bee pushback that spurred Elon Musk's action. And uh, there's actually a great Babylon Bee video. I could, I could send it to you. You can post it uh, for your uh, listeners later. That It is a parody of these woke people at Twitter HQ trying to decide who to ban and not, who not to ban. And the answer, of course, is always to ban the American conservative, mm -hmm. never to ban the foreign dictator or murderer, never to ban any liberal or any leftist activist, to always ban the conservative. It's interesting. We're kind of ending where we began, in a sense, on the issue of humor, because the Babylon Bee was a, was a humor site, is a humor site. For, it is. That's, yeah. that's all it is. Um, and, yeah, to the degree that um, to the degree that the banning of 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 the Babylon Bee uh, was the uh, catalyst for Elon Musk to uh, go back and, and, and try and open up free speech. You might have the parallel, um, again, to humor, um, maybe bad humor, but humor, as you were pointing out, might have been President Obama's overreach in 2012 and his use of humor directed at uh, his biting acerbic humor at Donald Trump that may have energized Donald Trump to roll up his sleeves and uh, maybe the message here is <laughs> i don't know what the message here is the message the message here is i suppose uh that if you're going to dish it you better be prepared to take it i guess good yeah, old-fashioned I mean, american I, I notion huh? <laughs> yeah i put it a little differently good humor requires humility okay you have to be able to laugh at yourself as you are also laughing with others and Obama never showed humility in yeah. his humor because he doesn't have it. Mm -hmm. And the left has no humility if they can't handle the, the gentle ribbing from the Babylon Bee. And Ronald Reagan was a master. Yep. Yep. I, and, I, I think that's right. I think that's right. I, ha I had okay. one more question I wanted to ask Matt Continetti when I had him and I didn't get a chance to because time ran out. But it's this, Tevin. I wonder if you have a quick answer to it. We have about a minute and a half left. For a movement that prides itself as a movement of ideas, the conservative movement, it is interesting, isn't it? You've written on this in presidential administrations. I think your last column uh, was about this. It is interesting how we conservatives um, end up in so many personality fights. And I don't know if they're equal, less than or more than, but – an awful lot of personality fights so instead of principle fights. Isn't it interesting that a party of movement ideas does does devolve into that quite often? Yes, but can I yeah. give this yeah. 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 Because yeah. so many of the fights that become about personalities often, often have a basis in policy differences or in perspective differences. Yep. And I think we saw this, let's say, in the Trump White House, where yep. everybody knows there's a lot of fighting in the Trump White House. And look, it's what spurred me to write my book, White House, all the talk about the fighting in the Trump White House. Perfect. But if you look at the issues of general conservative agreement, conservative constitutional judges, uh, support for Israel, lower taxes, you didn't read about fighting in the Trump White House about those issues. But if you look about issues where there's general disagreement in the conservative House, so think about immigration, Think about trade. Think about how to handle COVID. On those issues, there was a lot of insight. Yeah. And so it yeah. was personal, 
but it had a policy base. You got a good, yeah, that's a good point. Tevi Troy, gosh, I love spending time with you. This was great. I really appreciate all, uh, everything you do and all you do. Folks, you can go to tevitroy.org, T-E-V-I-T-R-O-Y.org. Uh, to uh, f- follow him, uh, get his columns. Uh, you will all if you like American history as much as I do. You will always learn something from every column he writes. Tevi Troy, Godspeed, and thank you, sir. Thank you. Talk to you soon. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Spending some of your afternoon with us. We covered a lot here today. If you missed any of it, 960thepatriot.com. We're going to close again as we did yesterday with a quote from Ronald Reagan. But before we do that, wrapping up everything embraced in today's show, I'll quote again Robert Jackson, Justice Robert, Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson. Think about this Department of Disinformation that the Department of Homeland Security is putting together. Now go back and think about Robert Jackson's line in West Virginia versus Barnett. There is no mysticism in the American concept of the state or of the nature or origin of its authority. We set up government by consent of the governed, and the Bill of Rights denies those in power any legal opportunity to coerce that consent. Authority here is to be controlled by public opinion, not public opinion, by authority. Think it can't happen here? Ronald Reagan. I give you Ronald Reagan. When I first suggested the danger of government control inherent in so many federal handouts, there were people who denied vehemently that every, any such thing could ever take place. And yet, before too long, the same people were saying, what's wrong with government control? And in the recent days, we've heard representatives in the higher echelons of government ask us, well, are you afraid of your own government? Well, to tell you the truth, I am. And all of us should be. And I speak not in a partisan sense of an administration or individuals. I'm talking of the institution of government. Wasn't this the admonition of the founding fathers that government tends to grow, to take on power, until freedom eventually is lost? The fact is, and we can't escape it, only government is capable of tyranny. Only government is capable of tyranny, and this government shows itself to be very capable of it. Again, we used to try to avoid these beginnings to avoid these ends. We'll do it together here as best we can. I'm Seth Leibson. God bless you all. Until tomorrow, class is dismissed. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.